I think that Donald Trump suffers less reputational damage than most people do if information is circulated suggesting that he is the subject of a criminal investigation or even if he was charged in a criminal case. It's partly because that's his brand and it's partly because he has a platform. You know, he has, it is, he has no difficulty getting his message out. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, on September 5th, 2022, U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump-appointed judge, granted former President Trump's request for a special master to review records seized by the FBI during its search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, thus delaying the Department of Justice's investigation into the alleged actions of the former president, blocking their review of the seized documents. In response, on September 8th, the department appealed Judge Cannon's order, citing the delay of review that could be a threat to our national security. So what's a special master? Is a special master appropriate in this situation? And what could it mean for the DOJ investigation? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this ruling, its potential impact, and the role of a special master. And to help us better understand this issue, we're joined by David Allen Sklansky. He is the Stanley Morrison Professor of Law at Stanford Law School. He's also the faculty co-director at Stanford Criminal Justice Center. David teaches and writes about criminal law, criminal procedure, and evidence. His newest book is A Pattern of Violence, How the Law Classifies Crimes and What It Means for Justice. It's available at Harvard University Press, was printed in 2021. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me on, Craig. Well, this is a certainly interesting and hot topic, but let's first start off giving our listeners some context about what a special master is and how we got into this situation. So district courts often appoint a special master when there's a mass of material that somebody neutral should look over. The most common context in which arises is when uh, an attorney's office has been searched pursuant to a search warrant, and a determination needs to be made about which materials are covered by attorney-client privilege. Um, I was a special master in in a case like that. So that's the normal context. That's how special masters normally get used. I'm going to assume, though, that what you're talking about is in a civil context, not a criminal. No, it can happen in a civil, in in a criminal context, too. Um, in, In fact, search warrants typically arise in, in the criminal context. And that that's, for example, it was a criminal case where I was brought in as a special master. The U.S. Attorney's Office or the Department of Justice typically goes along with and sometimes even requests the appointment of a special master because they want to make sure that they're not looking at materials uh, that are uh, privileged and that will taint their investigation. Right. But for those folks that do practice criminal law, there's this little thing called the privilege review team that's typically available both in the state uh, district attorney offices as well as federal courts. Yep. And often federal prosecutors will use that. They'll review material in-house as opposed to asking for a special master. Sometimes even when uh, material has been reviewed by a, a special team team inside the Department of Justice or inside a U.S. attorney's office, the district court will appoint a special master to double check the government's determinations. 
Sometimes the government flags materials as possibly privileged and then has a special master review those. In this case, the government did have its own review team. It did flag about uh, some documents as potentially covered by the attorney-client privilege. But the special master order that Judge Cannon issued um, contemplates uh, a much broader review. How, how broad? Well, the parameters uh, still need to be hammered out, but uh, the original order that Judge Cannon issued seemed to contemplate that the special master would review everything, which is thousands of documents and uh, other objects that were seized by the government during the search at Mar-a-Lago, and review those materials uh, not just to see whether any of them were covered by attorney-client privilege, but also to see whether any of them were covered uh, by executive privilege, and possibly also uh, just to determine whether the government has legitimate investigative interests in the materials or if they're just uh, purely private materials that should be returned to former President Trump. Well, in this situation, we had the original search warrant issued by a magistrate, Bruce Reinhardt, in a completely different district. Uh, I know from reading the opinion that there's an argument that the uh, district where the documents were seized is where an application could be made for a special master. But is it unusual in situations like this for another district court judge to take basically jurisdiction away from the where it started? Yeah, it's, it's one of many, many things that are unusual about this case. But yes, typically, um, if a special master has been appointed, uh, if typically if a search warrant has been issued and there are questions about how the search warrant should be administered, including whether a special master uh, should be appointed, you would go to uh, the magistrate judge that issued the warrant. So this is unusual. So let's talk about forum shopping. Where, uh, how do you get to do that? Well, the, the argument is exactly what you said, Craig, that President, the former President Trump's lawyers say that a court that has, uh, the, the court sitting in the place where a warrant was executed has inherent authority to issue, uh, in extraordinary circumstances, um, injunctions that are required in the interest of justice. And, um, their argument is that there are extraordinary circumstances here um, that require the appointment of a, of a special master um, and that that gives uh, the district court where the search was carried out jurisdiction. Yeah, I'm sure that from reading the opinion myself, I can, you know, just as a novice in the area of this situation, I think as anybody is. How many times have we had search warrants executed against former presidents, right? Uh, never. Uh, it's, uh, we, we, we've never had a situation where a former president is facing even one criminal investigation, let alone, I think we're at, at five at this point, uh, running concurrently, depending on how you count. Yeah, it's, there's, a, there's an awful lot of insanity at play here from these situations. But let's get back to being the special master in this situation. What happens uh, now. We've got, apparently, the Department of Justice and the Trump team have agreed on a special master, so now they're going to turn that over to the court and hammer out those details. Well, right? yeah, so the, the first thing is that the district judge needs to make a number of determinations about um, how her order is going to be carried out. Um, first, she needs to decide uh, whether who, who should be the special master. And she asked both parties uh, to submit um, suggested names and then to tell her if they had any objection to the names submitted by the other party. Former President Trump's lawyers objected to all the potential special masters who were proposed by the government, 
But the government said that it had no objection to uh, one of the uh, suggestions made by uh, Trump's lawyers. Um, And so this is a senior uh, district judge, former U.S. attorney. The fact that both parties say that he would be acceptable and that he apparently has indicated that he's willing to take on the assignment, make him the odds on favor favorite to be uh, appointed. So that's what, that in some ways, it's the easiest decision um, that Judge Cannon needs to make. The next decision she needs to make is whether um, to grant a partial stay of her order pending appeal. Um, the, the government has asked her to stay only a small part of the order. They, they have asked her to grant a stay uh, with regard to the portion of the order that covers uh, roughly 100 documents that are marked classified and that have been seized, that were seized in the search of Mar-a-Laga. And uh, the, the government says those documents shouldn't be subject to review uh, by the special master and they should be allowed uh, to continue to use those documents uh, in their uh, investigations, both their criminal investigation and uh, the ongoing inquiry into uh, the ramifications of any security breach uh, that's occurred. That, that's in a way what might be an attractive off-ramp for the judge because um, it's um, it, it's a compromise. Uh, the government is is not is willing to go along with a special master that will review the vast majority of the materials that were seized during the search. They're not asking for a stay of the part of the order that suggests that the special master should do more than screen for attorney-client privilege, that the special master should also screen for possible executive privilege and and possibly also for uh, materials that are purely private and don't have legitimate investigative importance. So in a way, they're, they're, they're going a long way toward meeting the judge in the middle and saying they're, they're just asking for this one small part of the order uh, to be stayed pending appeal. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the judge agrees to that. There may be also, there, there's also a question about how long uh, the special master should be given to carry out uh, this work. Uh, the Department of Justice suggests a couple of weeks should be sufficient. Trump's lawyers uh, say that the special master should be given three months to carry out the work. So the judge needs to figure that out. And when the judge, part of that may be trying to figure out exactly what the special master is supposed to be doing. Because as, as I mentioned, the, the normal context in which a special master is appointed has to do with attorney-client privilege where the, the, the legal standards are, are, are relatively clear. So, all, for example, when I was a special master, I was reviewing materials seized in a search to determine whether any of them were potentially covered by attorney-client privilege. The rules about what materials get, are covered by attorney-client privilege are relatively straightforward. So I was just applying pretty clear rules. With regard to an executive privilege claim raised by a former president against the current executive branch, the standards are anything but clear. In fact, the Department of Justice asserts that there is no such thing as executive privilege against the for, uh, the current executive branch. Right. There could only be one holder of the executive privilege yeah. at a time. I mean, and hasn't Trump lost that privilege now? The same as hasn't he lost the attorney-client privilege? Well, he might have. I mean, he might have lost uh, the executive privilege by not asserting it, but he may also have lost the executive privilege because he's not the executive anymore. Right, right. That's what I meant. But the law isn't clear about the degree to the circumstances in which 
a former president can assert executive privilege contrary to the wishes of the current administration. Um, in fact, um, in January of this year, the Supreme Court said in a, in a short opinion that the question of whether and under what circumstances a former president can assert executive privilege uh, are uh, in the face of a determination by the current administration to waive it are unsettled. Now, that was a case of, that concerned whether former President Trump could assert executive privilege against Congress. It, it, it goes a further step to suggest that he could assert executive privilege against the current executive branch. And my own view is that the Department of Justice is right that a privilege in that context doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it's difficult to see how you could say that the, the current executive branch isn't allowed to look at materials that document how executive branch decisions were made in previous administrations. It's just hard to see how the government could function. Right. And in the face of the Presidential Records Act, it would seem impossible that a former president could assert anything over documents he shouldn't have in the first place. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, Trump's lawyers say that the Presidential Records Act supports their claim because it gives the former president absolute access to uh, presidential records. Um, there are there are a couple of problems with that. One is that saying that the president, former president has access is different from saying that he can prevent the current executive branch from looking at or using the documents. The other problem is that it's not clear that all these records qualify as presidential records as opposed to records of other branches of the government. When you take a look at the judge who's going to be the special master, regardless of how long he's going to get to take to do this work, does he have the current clearances to potentially look at top secret documents and the ones that are even more than that, the nuclear secrets? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. That may be another factor that would slow the process down. There's also a question about whether um, somebody who is currently on the bench, although on senior status, can accept an assignment of this kind. The government has flagged that issue, but everybody seems to think that that issue, the issue of whether the judge could take this on while he's on senior status, is resolvable. I, the, the, the question you raised, though, about uh, security clearance is a really good one. I don't know what, uh, what current security clearances he has. He did serve on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in the past, but, you know, uh, it's not clear whether um, and, what to, and to what extent any of the clearances that he held in the past are still active. So the Department of Justice has supposedly made an appeal here. Yeah, they've, they've said that they are appealing the part of the order that covers documents that are marked classified. And that's the part that they want the, with regard to which they want the judge to uh, stay the order pending appeal. Their argument is that these are documents where the reasons for thinking that there might be some claim of privilege are especially weak and where the interference with legitimate government interests are especially grave. Their argument is that if you have documents that are marked classified, the argument that uh, those could be covered by executive privilege, that government's documents marked classified could be exempt from review by the current executive branch, seems especially 
insane, to use a a technical term. And conversely, they say those are the documents that are particularly important for them to review to determine not just uh, whether there uh, are active security breaches that they need to address, um, there have been reports, for example, that some of these documents may con- uh, may include information about human sources uh, that could be compromised and endangered, um, but also to determine whether uh, th- there are grounds to think that federal criminal laws were violated by removing these documents, by keeping them uh, in <laughs> Trump's resort in Florida, and-, and whether there's reason to think that there is obstruction of justice arising from the failure of the former president and his team to return these documents and possible efforts to conceal uh, that documents were taken and retained that shouldn't have been. Well, David, it's, I, I can't believe I have to stop this conversation, but here we are. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Craig Williams. I'm joined by David Allen Sklansky. He's a professor of law at Stanford Law School and faculty co-director at Stanford Criminal Justice Center. Well, David, right before the break, you used the word insane. I used it in the beginning. There's an awful lot of people that disagree with uh, this ruling. What are the problems with the reasoning in it? Well, the first problem is you need to get your, your head around the idea that there could be uh, an executive privilege in a former president as against the current executive branch. You need to get your head around the idea that it makes sense to think that uh, when a president leaves office, he can say, there are documents relating to the work that I did running the government that my successor is not allowed to see because uh, they, they have to do with how decisions were made inside the executive branch. That for many people, including I have to say for me, that's a non-starter because uh, it just seems completely unworkable. Then you need to get your head around the idea that um, it's okay that it makes sense to um, appoint a special master in this case to protect that interest, even if it does exist, as opposed to letting the process play out the way it normally would and allowing the president to uh, assert a privilege claim in the criminal process if he thinks uh, that it would be viable. 
There's the question of, of jurisdiction and venue, which you raised at the top of the program. And there, uh, th- there's the issue of whether it makes any sense to think that the president has a legitimate privilege claim that could be raised after he slept on his rights for several weeks following the search and failed to assert this interest. Beyond that, this is an equitable order. It's an injunction. So it requires a balancing of interests. And um, one thing that many people criticize the judge for, I, I think justifiably, is that her balancing of interests seems off. On the one hand, she uh, gave a very little uh, weight to the government's interest in uh, conducting its criminal investigation. She did give weight to the government's interest in carrying out its security review, to, to, in determining whether there's reason to think that um, sources have been compromised or the national security has been compromised in some way by the way these documents have been handled and figuring out what needs to be done. She said that kind of work can continue. But um, in her weighing of the equities, she seemed to give little or no weight to the government's interest in expeditiously carrying out its criminal investigation. On the other hand, she gave an enormous amount of weight, again, in a way that strikes many people, including me, as inappropriate, to um, the president's uh, personal interests. She said that this case differs from a normal criminal, from the, the execution of a search warrant in a normal case, because President Trump has a much greater interest than most people do in avoiding the embarrassment of a criminal charge. Um, because as a former president, his reputational interests are, are higher than uh, an ordinary person's. And, and that's, uh, the judge suggested, justifies bringing a special master in to double check to make sure that this investigation really is warranted. Uh, that, that strikes me as, first of all, an, an unprecedented step to take in a criminal investigation to say, uh, in addition to concerns about privilege, I just want uh, to make sure that the government, uh, uh, the, gov- the documents the government has are have legitimate investigative value. But beyond that, I think in, in a country where no one is supposed to be above the law, where we're supposed to be governed by laws and not by individuals, uh, it doesn't sit right to say that certain people, because of jobs that they held, um, get special protection from the inconveniences of being the subject of a criminal investigation or the defendant in a criminal case. I, I think it's it's particularly hard to credit in the case of Donald Trump because his brand is entirely wrapped up in the idea that he is, uh, you know, in battle against uh, the government. So, for I would I think that Donald Trump suffers less reputational damage than most people do if information is circulated suggesting that he is the subject of a criminal investigation or even if he was charged in a criminal case. It's partly because that's his brand and it's partly because he has a platform. You know, he has it is he has no difficulty getting his message out. So the balancing of equities that Judge Cannon carried out struck a lot of people, including me, as as unbalanced in, in two respects. It overvalued uh, Trump's interests and it undervalued the government's interests. Kind of reminds me of the quote from Star Trek when Spock was dying when he said the rights of the many outweigh the rights of the one. 
You know, everything we needed to learn, we learned from Star Trek. (laughs) Exactly correct. Well, David, it's time for another quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm back with David Allen Slansky. We've been discussing this Trump brand and this Trump supposed reputational right, and perhaps whether it's right or wrong, but that's not even, as you said in the beginning, that's not even the standard. It is the right of the American people that outweigh the right of President Trump, no matter what. Yeah. I mean, the the fact is, it, it it's uh, very unpleasant to be the subject of a criminal investigation. It's even more unpleasant to be a criminal defendant. But we have procedures that are set up to protect those interests, those procedures fail in lots of ways and need to be fixed in lots of ways. But this particular fix, that anytime there's a criminal investigation, if it's a famous or influential person who's targeted, all of the material seized in the search warrant have to be reviewed by a special master, that's not a good way to try to fix criminal procedure. And if it's not a good way to fix criminal procedure in general, it shouldn't be something that's given to Donald Trump. And how does her being appointed by President Trump play into this? Does that... Should she be recusing herself at this point? No, I don't think she should be recusing herself. I mean, it's common for judges who are appointed by uh, a particular president or a particular administration to have to rule on claims against uh, that president or that administration. Um, (laughs) That kind of argument that the judge needs to recuse himself or herself uh, because I think they're on the other side, that's an argument that Trump makes frequently uh, about jurists uh, who he disagrees with. Um, but I think it's a, a bad argument when Trump makes it. And I, I think the government ha- is is correct not to make that argument here. You know, we've talked about the part of the opinion that the DOJ has appealed. And I see here that the judge has issued a temporary injunction uh, ruling that somehow Trump has the likelihood of success on the merits. Do you believe that's been demonstrated? No, I, I don't. But, you know, that that's uh, partly because I, I think that um, the, the, the way the judge has thought about uh, executive privilege uh, doesn't make any sense. And um, the suggestion in the order that maybe Trump has some right to have an independent third party determine whether the government has legitimate investigative interests in the material or whether it's too private and should be returned to him. I don't think that that warrants the appointment of a special master either. Is the DOJ right now enjoined from pursuing its investigation? Yeah, they, yes, they are. And they, they have stalled much of the investigation um, because, well, I should clarify, they're not enjoined from carrying out an investigation. They are enjoined from using any of the materials that they seized in the search uh, as part of that investigation. And that includes 
using information from the materials that they've already obtained. Because remember, that this motion wasn't made until a couple of weeks after the search took place. So the government's already reviewed a lot of these documents. And right now, they are enjoined from making use of anything they learn from the documents or from using the documents in any way for the purposes of their criminal case. The government has asserted that it doesn't make sense to try to uh, separate out the criminal investigation from the national security inquiry, but they've agreed to go along with the the judge's order, aside from the the hundred or so documents that are marked classified, which they say should be exempt. Trump's lawyers say, no, those documents shouldn't be exempt because we we can't just trust the government that those are actually classified just because they were marked classified. Maybe they're not classified uh, or they shouldn't be classified. And But uh, I, as I said before, I think the government's uh, argument that the, the mere fact that they are marked classified indicates that uh, Trump's claims to have some protection against the administration using them are particularly weak and the government's need to look at the documents is particularly strong. That argument makes a lot of sense to me. So I think this is an attractive off-ramp for the judge to take. I think it's a way for her to keep the vast majority of her order intact while accommodating the government's particular concerns about a small set of documents. Let's talk about three equal branches here. You know, we have the judicial branch at this point saying stop. And on the other hand, we have the executive branch saying, you know, we need to continue our investigation and move this forward and use these documents. But there's another concern here. I mean, we have, there's been some identification of reports regarding foreign nations' nuclear capabilities, defense capabilities. As you mentioned earlier, there's been some human interest or human uh, intelligence issues that are in these documents. And there's been an allegation by the CIA that ever since Trump took office, our people overseas have been getting killed more frequently than they were with any other president. So we think he may have been trading in these documents even during his presidency. I mean, where are we going on this? Are we going to get, are we going to reach a treason point? Are we espionage? Uh, what are, well, I how, think- <laughs> how do we, how do we balance these, two, these branches, our national security interests against the judicial branch? Well, I think it's very hard to figure out where, where this is going to go uh, and what's going to what is what we're going to learn um, because uh, we keep learning new things uh, every week and it, it's it's hard to know what these what story these documents will tell and what story will be told once uh, people connected with these documents other than Trump uh, start being questioned by the government about them. I do think that given the concerns about uh, the 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 high level of sensitivity of these documents. It 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 is particularly important that a thorough review take place immediately and expeditiously about what kinds of what secrets may have been compromised. Because the problem is that if, if there is material in these documents, the the government may not be in a position to know how those documents have been handled since they were taken from the White House, who was shown those documents, whether not just who was shown those documents inside Trump's circle, but whether any Trump or anybody else shared those documents with uh, p- potentially hostile governments overseas. So 
it, it's a major, major concern. Um, and the government's uh, one of the government's arguments for staying the order with regard to the hundred documents that are marked classified is that they say that as a practical matter, it is difficult for the CIA. Uh, and the intelligence community to carry out that assessment without uh, working hand-in-hand with uh, the criminal investigators at the FBI. Um, So they need both. um, They need all hands on deck with regard to those documents, Uh, not just to determine whether a criminal case can be brought, but to determine what information may have been compromised and what steps may need to be taken to protect all kinds of secrets of, of, of the United States, nuclear secrets, human source secrets, and so on. You know, I, there are a million more questions in my head about this thing, as I'm sure you know exist in it. But we're about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take the opportunity to wrap up and get your final thoughts with this whole thing. But as part of that, do you think any of these documents might be somewhere else in Trump's domain? I mean, I've seen a photograph of a classified folder behind his bar. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it's, there, it's very hard to have confidence that the government has retrieved all the sensitive documents uh, that were improperly taken to Mar-a-Lago, given uh, the haphazard way uh, in which the, gov- the documents uh, appear to have been handled, and given the fact that the government appears to have been lied to by Trump's attorneys about whether uh, or the, all the documents that were classified had been returned, then it's it's not clear um, whether who the attorneys were r- relying on when they made those representations. Uh, but the bottom line is, it's very it's it's difficult. I think it's impossible to be confident that all the co- confidential documents have been returned at this point. And for me, one of the most telling details about this whole episode is that. There are reports that when the FBI agents were carrying out the search, they became alarmed because they didn't have security clearance necessary to look at some of the documents that they were finding. That's how sensitive these documents are. And the cavalier way in which they were handled by former President Trump, I I think, um, should be a, a, a very, very great concern and alarm to all Americans, wholly aside from whether he winds up having any criminal liability uh, arising because of his handling of the documents. Right. Let's just swirl one more thing into the end of it. We have evidence that there have been foreign nationals that were admitted as members of the club, some Russian princesses who weren't even. Yeah, well, there's, (laughs) there's, I, I, I do think that uh, it, it, no matter what Trump's attitudes were towards foreign governments, no matter how carefully a person he was, the idea that he would take sensitive documents and keep them at this private club where paid members can circulate, it w- would be very, very worrisome. But it is particularly worrisome. It's even more worrisome given the fact that Trump has a long history of friendliness towards and coziness with some particularly frightening and dangerous foreign leaders, including Vladimir Putin. It is quite scary. Well, David, it looks like we've reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity to have you share your last final thoughts and your contact information, if you'd like, for our listeners to reach out to you. So I'm happy to share my contact information. The best way to reach me uh, is by email. The email is sklansky at stanford.edu. Sklansky is S-K-L-A-N. 
S-K-Y, um, and it's at stanford.edu. I guess my, farm, my, my final thoughts are that uh, it, it's, I think it's important for all Americans to try to think about what a sensible resolution would be in a case like this, and and uh, to try to think about resolutions that will be broadly acceptable, even to people who disagree with them. The, the Judge Cannon said that she thought a special master should be appointed because it was particularly in this, important in this case for there to be a, an appearance of impropriety, uh, 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 to avoid any appearance of impropriety, for there to be an appearance of fairness as well as actual fairness. I think those are are the correct concerns. I don't think appointing a special master necessarily helps in that regard. But I do think that um, it, it's good to try to figure out procedures that can be trusted by people from a who hold a wide range of views. And I, I am happy uh, that the government's uh, posture in this case has been to try to find a compromise that will safeguard what's most important to them while also agreeing to procedures that they don't think are, are appropriate and which I don't think are appropriate, but which the government thinks that they can live with. Well, David, thank you. This has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and I'm not sure that I can add much more to it, but I sure have more questions about it. In any event, thank you very much. We've had Professor David Allen Sklansky from Stanford Law School, and it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Craig. Well, as Professor Sklansky said, the word insanity has been tossed around quite a bit, not only between the two of us, but also between as seen in a lot of media outlets that have come out criticizing this order. Let's talk about that a little bit. The just crap news that we have because there's no editor, there's no vetting, there's no factual checks of these documents. I mean, back in the day when newspapers were out there, you couldn't get past an editor. The editor would go, Where, who, let me see your source notes. You know, who did you talk to? When did you talk to them? What did they say to you? Or is this what they said? Or are you spinning it? You know, and so you have to get past the editor. And then, you know, you see the stuff that's written these days. It's written in the first person. It's written full of opinion. And as soon as you start seeing opinion coming out in, in something you're reading, just discard it because it's just one person's opinion. It's really hard to be, to have, I have, I believe I have that kind of critical thing because the cynical aspect of it, because I was trained that way in law school, plus my undergraduate degrees in communication arts. So I was a journalist and I understand the newsroom process about way that you get something printed and you get a story assigned to you, you go out and search it, you come back and discuss it at the table with the editor, you go and you write it up, it goes through several drafts, it goes through an independent branch in the newspaper office where they verify all the facts. It's not the editor. It's not the, the reporter. It's an independent review team. They call the sources to say, did you say this? Did you say this? Did you say this? And that's, that doesn't happen today. What can you rely on as the truth these days? Well, and if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. 
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.